Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The therapeutic value of music is widely known. Major research has shown that music can heal emotional suffering and has positive physical effects such as reducing heart rate and blood pressure. The Emory Chamber Music Society has begun a music and healing initiative. Later in the hour, we'll hear about the project from pianist and Emory professor Will Ransom and violist Yinzi Kong of the Vega Quartet, who also teaches at Emory. First, Bauhaus in German means school of building. The name Bauhaus refers to an avant-garde arts and crafts academy in Germany that flourished between the world wars and whose influence remains far-reaching today. The Georgia Tech School of Industrial Design was created by the Bauhaus-educated Hin Breidendieck, and a new exhibition showcases his life and work. Joining us now are Dr. Reiner Stamm, co-author of Hinbredendijk, From Aurich to Atlanta, and director of the Oldenburg State Museum for Art and Cultural History. Along with Kirk Henderson, program manager for the Georgia Tech Library and curator of the exhibition. Welcome to City Lights. Hello. Thank you. Please tell us, how did the partnership between the Georgia Tech Library and the Landes Museum Oldenburg come about? Um, it started, I think, in 2000. 16 or 17, when Gloria, uh, the co-author, the co and me uh, started to investigate the bequest of Hinbredendijk um, and the holdings of the um, Georgia Tech Library. And we were very astonished to find such a huge amount of um, documents, photographs, sketches, and documents of the life of Hinbredendijk at Atlanta. Hmm. Would you tell us more, please, about Hin Bredendijk's 
connection with Georgia Tech? After World War II, the School of Architecture here at Georgia Tech was very much interested in starting an industrial design program. And Hindrieden Deek was um, known as a educator and a Bauhaus graduate. And in 1952, the then director of the School of Architecture, Harold Bush Brown, brought Breedendieck here to the South. Uh, he had been in Chicago where he was associated with uh, the new Bauhaus, which was founded in Chicago in, the 19, in 1938, and then was later associated with the Institute of Design, sort of a follow-up institution or a follow-up organization from the new Bauhaus. So it was Georgia Tech's interest in building an industrial design program as an adjunct to their existing design programs in architecture and engineering. And it was seen in the post-war period as like the need for industrial design education was going to be uh, a tremendous need uh, in order to develop products and ideas for the market and, in, and for industry in the South. I read that as a young man in art school, Bradendick rebelled against traditional art and design practices, and he developed a reputation as a radical troublemaker. How did his design practices differ from those of his peers? When he started to study in Germany, he studied at the mostly traditional um, schools for advanced arts uh, in Stuttgart and Hamburg. And in that times, it was um, the main issue to copy uh, former or, or already, already existing ornaments and so on. And that was uh, totally not that what um, he could um, like very much or he could satisfy. Um, and so he went to another school, to the um, Bauhaus at Dessau in that time. And that was a very young, uh, the most modern um, art school in that time. And that was a very right place for him. What are some of his more famous designs? He uh, went to the metal workshop. Um, Laszlo Molinoc um, told him that that could be the right place for him. And together with the well-known um, designer Marianne Brandt and others, he worked on lighting fixtures, um, modern lighting fixtures, which um, avoid to spread the light into the face, but only to the workplace or to the reading book or to the place um, where it sh should be uh, go. And that was uh, the functional way of designing and of creating design objects for daily life. And that was what he, he has been very interested in. And I'll just add that I, I like to th think of it as they were interested in addressing the problem of how the light from a light bulb could be put in the correct places and, and create devices, lamps, lighting devices that would elegantly and efficiently make our lives better by lighting the workspaces and the home spaces that we, that we needed illuminated. The designs, the simplicity and beauty and, and the emphasis on function seem to be ideal 
Why did the Nazis disapprove of the Bauhaus? The Bauhaus um, took position on the left wing and it was um, very necessary for the Bauhaus to be a sort of international, not a national way of specific German art, but the Bauhaus wanted to be part of the international style. What in that time um, really began to exist um, all over the world. Um, it was connected to Palestine, to um, Japan. Um, at the Bauhaus studied um, people from nearly all over the world uh, in that time. They came from all over uh, Europe. There were many uh, women students at the Bauhaus um, really doing design um, and starting to be um, architects as well. And so that was the most modern school of art and architecture in that time and so it was really contrary um, to that was uh, what the Nazis wanted to do. Mm. Would you tell us what will be on display in the library's exhibition? Sure, we, we have um, our extensive collections which are, are part of um, a whole which is also includes Oldenburg's material. But what's featured in our current exhibition will be things from the Georgia Tech Library's collection. That includes such things as some early sketches that Friedendieck did during his Bauhaus days when he was working in the Bauhaus de Sau metal workshop, instances of some chair design. Uh, we also have on loan from the Friedendieck family, one of the lamps for which he is best known. Um, these were produced in the 1930s in cooperation. The design was developed by the Bauhaus Metal Workshop, but they were produced by a manufacturing company. The lamp that we have on display is known as the Kandem lamp, the K-A-N-D-E-M uh, is how it is spelled, is the trademark of the company that produced these lamps. It's sort of this iconic ideal of a desk lamp uh, we can see these kinds of things all over the place nowadays, but I'd like to think that this is a way in which uh, the folks at the Bauhaus were, for the first time in many ways, addressing like how you best light your work surface or your night nightstand if you were in bed. And so that's one of the things that's on display. Uh, one of my favorite things in, in the exhibit in some ways is, is the ship's a ship's log, which is sort of a souvenir of Riedendieck having made this transition from Germany in 1938 to come to the United States, uh, as did many of his colleagues from the Bauhaus. And to me, that kind of represents an instance where they're, they're taking their knowledge and their educational methods and they're bringing them to other parts of the world, and, and in our case, most specifically to the United States. That's, an example where we see a pivot point in his life where he comes to a new world, uh, to the United States, and his influence and the influence of his colleagues is extended by having made that transition. So those are a few, few things that, that will be represented in the exhibit. And probably to add what is really interesting, when we look on that um, lamp from our days, uh, from today, it looks very usual and modern, but such sorts of lamps or of designs by Hinbridendick and his colleagues were the very first modern ones uh, and were sort of the cradle of, of 
our uh, contemporary design today. So that makes, in my um, opinion, this story so important and so fascinating as well. There will be a virtual discussion on the book Hin Bredendieck from Aarich to Atlanta, which you, Rainer Stamm, and Gloria Kirpik co-wrote. How did you first become familiar with his work? When did you discover his creativity? First of all, we started to plan an, an exhibition for the Oldenburg's Museum for the 100th year of um, Bauhaus anniversary um, in 2019. And that exhibition was about four former Bauhaus uh, students from our region. And it turned out very quickly that um, amongst them, Hinbrindig was the most fascinating of all of them. And he not only stood in one region or in one country, but he was uh, one of the Bauhaus people who spread those ideas of modern design movement uh, into another world, into another country, because he was forced to emigrate from Germany under the Nazis. And then we uh, recognized that um, the story of him um, was totally divided between the European, the early years, and the late, the American years. We re recognized that Hinbrindig um, was quite well known in uh, Atlanta on, and in Georgia as the one who uh, started to, to build up the, this industrial design um, education at the Georgia Tech. Um, and we found that um, the Bauhaus museums in Germany and um, in Switzerland, some design collections, knew him as designer of Bauhaus um, design uh, objects. But the two parts of his story, of his life, um, were still divided into languages um, onto those two continents and countries. And that was our... Um, idea to to put these parts uh, together again and to tell the whole story of him a story um, of spreading modern ideas from one world to another that's great there will be several virtual events surrounding the exhibition one of those with Braden Deke's former students how did you get in touch with them when we um, came to the Georgia Tech last time um, in 2019, um, a colleague of Kirk Henderson, uh, Susan Sanders, um, brought us in contact with uh, the alumni um, of HIN. And that was really fascinating because we, up to the, that time, knew him only from documents, from photographs and from the very few family stories uh, um, family members told us. but they could tell us the story of learning with Hin Bredendieck, of his design ideas, of the very early time of industrial design education in the New South of that times. And it was very fascinating as well to hear from the very first women um, design student uh, who started by Hin and to hear those stories from themselves. Hmm. 
How were Brayden Deek's teachings influential to Georgia Tech's design program? We've talked about his actual designs. What about his pedagogy? I think that an interesting aspect of the Bauhaus legacy and of, of Breedendick's legacy is that it's not simply a design legacy of objects and things that were created, but also an approach to education, an approach to design education that, that Breedendick brought with him and brought to, to us here at Georgia Tech and, and the way in which design, industrial design, is approached, is taught these days, is something that I think owes much of its uh, approach to the teaching methods that Friedrich experienced in the Bauhaus. And so as he came to Georgia Tech, uh, some of the material in our classrooms sort of shows him trying to implement those methods, which involve sort of working with specific materials, understanding things, making sure that you understood the problem that you were solving when you approached a design, working through multiple ideas to come to the most, the best possible solution. Um, some of the documents in our collection uh, show that he brought that Bauhaus legacy with him in his teaching practice, but also that as he uh, went through his career, he was also interested in developing and extending and to some extent making scientific that approach to design, um, which focused uh, in many ways on the user and the ergonomics that were involved with creating an object, sometimes even the simplest object. One of my favorite quotes from uh, the book that Reiner and Gloria did as concerns like just a, a very commonplace object, which was a tea glass holder, but he's reading these comments about it was that even the simplest things require a good bit of thought in terms of conceptualizing your design. And the purpose being so that, you know, the things that you, the objects you interact with most frequently don't take up your time or steal your joy in the process of using them. Hmm. It's astonishing to realize the Bauhaus School of Design lasted barely 14 years in Germany. Yet its impact is so profound to this day. What accounts for that? I think it's hard to, to, to accept, but the Nazi era or the, the fact that um, the Bauhaus or, or a great number of Bauhaus people had to um, go out from Germany into other countries had been a part of, of um, this major impact of the Bauhaus. Because if the Bauhaus could have stood in, in Germany only, probably it, it hasn't been or it uh, wouldn't have been such important and such uh, international at the end. But that is a strange part of the, the history, but I really think that um, the fact that uh, so many people from the Bauhaus, teachers and uh, former students, uh, went into immigration is part of the, the, the influence of the Bauhaus up to our times, not only in, in the USA, um, but uh, 
at in the USA, um, we, we had um, Walter Gropius, Mies van der Rohe, Marcel Breuer, Herbert Bayer, um, Josef Albers at Black Mountain Co College. So many um, former Bauhaus people um, went uh, into other countries and um, created an, a new form of Bauhaus education um, in those countries as well. This has been just fascinating. Dr. Reiner Stamm, Kirk Henderson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Kirk Henderson, the Exhibitions Program Manager for the Georgia Tech Library with Bauhaus scholar Dr. Reiner Stamm. The exhibition Hin Bradendick from Aurich to Atlanta will be on view through May 31st. More information about the upcoming virtual events will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The therapeutic value of music is widely known. Research has shown that music can heal emotional suffering and has positive physical effects such as reducing heart rate and blood pressure. The Emory Chamber Music Society has begun a music and healing initiative. Pianist and Professor Will Ransom is director of the Society. He joins us now with Emory faculty member Nzi Kong, violist with the Vega Quartet. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thanks, Lois. Always great to speak with you. Well, you both are very busy musicians with full-time teaching as well as performance schedules. Why did you commit to music and healing? This is a, an initiative that I've wanted to launch for a long time. Um, you know, music is such an integral part of everybody's lives in every way. We don't even realize it sometimes, but um, of course at every big ceremony, whether it's a wedding or a graduation or an inauguration or a funeral or a church service, there is always music. It's part of our lives. I think even much more so than people generally recognize. And some people think of music as entertainment. Uh, some think of it as uh, praise. And we all sort of consume it or enjoy it in different ways. And 
one thing that I've wanted to do for a long time is to be able to take music into hospitals and nursing homes, healthcare centers in general, uh, and Alzheimer's uh, homes as well, to bring out the best for people who probably need it the most. And I hadn't been able to, to do it financially for many years, but we have this wonderful new anonymous donor, which is allowing us to now start this program. And we had originally planned to start it in the fall of this year, but a wonderful opportunity came up to begin in January. So we've gone ahead and started it and we're sending the Vega Quartet to the vaccine center at North Lake Mall, the Emory Vaccine Center, uh, every two weeks. And the musicians are playing for the people who are getting their shots, uh, for the doctors who are there. And these programs are not formal <laughs> concerts, obviously, but they're also not meant just to be background music. Um, that, that's a term that professional musicians really do not like because the idea of having music in the background and not focusing on it, not listening on it, to it very carefully is, is very foreign to us. It's a waste. <laughs> yeah. I, somehow, I, I think it's one of uh, music's functions. You know, I, I think it's kind of like lighting. Sometimes when it's a light show, it can be in focus. Um, um, but sometimes it just casts such atmosphere. It's like fragrance. It's like color, you know. I, I don't think background music is anything lower in a sense. It's just different. And there are proper music for that as well. But that's just my take on it. I think that's a very artful take. I would too, being a musician, when I hear background music, it's never background for me. You know, my focus was there right away. Um, but I can understand for a lot of people that it at atmospheric is a very good use of music. Well, that that is so tolerant and open-minded <laughs> of you, Yinzi. Well, it's true. I mean, it, it's another one of the functions of music, I guess. And your wonderful series with Scott Stewart about uh, music in the movies is is so incredible because uh, it shows that it is. It's an integral part of the experience of of movies and of life. And if you've ever tried to watch a movie without the music in the background, it's, it can be very dull and and not make much sense. Oh, indeed. Music can be a character in a movie, and it certainly leads us, whether we realize it or not, deeper into the plot. Well, what determines the music that you play at these music and healing performances? I had very early experience when I just started my career as a, a musician uh, with the Vega Quartet. Uh, we, I remember still clearly about 20 some years ago, we played in a facility for disabled children. And we gathered in a big um, hospital room and they wheeled in the children. Uh, and some of them are um, have physical uh, disabilities and some of them have mental disabilities. And yet when the music starts, we do see 
a difference on their face, even when they still move or making noise, some, some of them uncontrollably. But that light music casts on their face is invaluable. It was such a rewarding experience for us. And I personally has always wanted to do more of these kind of things. I feel it's when we brought music to this, it's different than the concert halls. It's healing for the patients, but it's also healing for us musicians as well. I think, again, it's different priority uh, when you put music in different setting in the concert halls. Yes, we enjoy playing music, but it is more like, for me at least, to honestly deliver what the composers meant for the audience to hear. And we musicians inject so much energy. And I feel like sometimes we need to get replenished. Mm -hmm. And then when I play for these in the healing center or in the medical facility or vaccination center, when I play, I choose music that I share as an equal part of the listeners. I, I don't know if it m makes sense. In the concert hall, I do share, but I'm more taking a dictator's role. Like I choose what mm. part of the composition that we want to emphasize on for the day for the audience to hear. But when I play in that kind of settings, I feel like the music just works over me just like for the audience there happen to be, um, it is very healing. Mm. Well, the next performance will be on April 1st. You'll play music of Bach, Max Reger, and Henri Vuitton. Well, first, why these selections? Okay, um, I have very practical reason for it, because those are all solo uh, pieces that does not require any accompaniment. So uh, these pieces are, are independently complete without Will's help, which mm -hmm. I love. Uh, <laughs> no piano required. Like <laughs> no, I like to be self-sufficient. Um, so that's one practical reason. And partly because of that, those music, a lot of it is like monologue. It's extremely intimate. It's extremely personal. I've always loved Bach. It's for me, whenever I feel stressed, I feel overwhelmed by pressure, by sadness, or sometimes by excitement or by joy, I play Bach. And you that's absolutely true. You can ask, well, that's what I do. And it always, give me an outlet to channel my emotions. And I feel afterwards balanced and a content. And I want to bring this to the people there of the day as well.
When I play ragger, that piece is very special for me. This is the first suite of ragger. And for me, that piece means growing pain. I mean, there's nothing in the composer's program notes, but you know, music is so personal. We always see ourselves in it. It almost serves like a mirror. So I see in this music, the growing pain of a violist or of any person that coming from uncomfortable youth, feeling alone and not be understood, the frustration and the loneliness, the anger from it. Gratitude, this second movement is kind of sarcastic, like fine, you don't get me, I don't care, just make fun of the situation. And to the third movement, it's a complete acceptance with bittersweetness. It's that, that life is not perfect. There will be struggles, but totally fine. And enjoy whatever you can enjoy, that kind of peaceful mindset. And then the last movement is just, I cannot say the word, radio, public radio. <laughs> <but> <laughs> That's like, you know, whatever off, I'll just be myself. because all these short movements so like vividly capture those emotions and very very personal to me and I feel through this pandemic everybody is going through some of these growing pains you know like from like why are we trapped here the frustration the anger why did it happen you know to like all the jokes about that floated on internet and <laughs> And then we're like, okay, we're getting the end. This is okay. We still can find silver linings on this. You know, we get personal time. I finally get time to have our very belated honeymoon with my husband oh. <laughs> together. Uh, you know, there's a silver lining. And then at the end, you know, whatever happens, life goes on. And I'm curious, what kind of response you have had to these performances at the vaccination center <laughs> have people commented to you or thanked oh absolutely uh, i'll tell you the funniest comment is they said oh you should bring a box in put in front of you so i can put money in there <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we actually made $22. <laughs> People were throwing money at the starving musicians. Yes. That was so sweet. <laughs> I took a picture of that. <laughs> and I uh, just, you know, and we didn't have a boss because that's not 
what we were there for. But people walked by, put down a dollar. <laughs> a woman so kindly said, oh, this is so beautiful. I put down $20 and said, go get yourself a bottle of wine. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so sweet. Yeah, they, they came to us and they say, they, they show their appreciation. They took pictures of us. I hope they don't use it wrongly, but <laughs> it's out of my control. Yeah, it, it has been great experience. Mm. Well, I, I saw on social media, Yo-Yo Ma was playing <laughs> at a vaccination center, I believe in Massachusetts. So, really? Yeah. Wow. He got the idea from us. I, I gather <laughs> he heard about the Vega and the Emory Chamber Music Society. When it is safe, when more people are vaccinated and life has returned to some semblance of normal, where do you hope this music for healing initiative will go? Well, I, I have to tell you first that my original experience with this started with my grandmother, uh, with whom I was very close. She was a very important figure in my life, uh, taught me really to love nature uh, and poetry and music uh, and about what it means to be uh, a good person. <laughs> and she was really very central to my life. And when she got older, she was in a nursing home and had lost her power of, of speech, but could still understand things. But she, she was pretty much out of it. And so when I was a teenager, I would go visit her and there was a piano there, a little upright piano in one of the rooms. And so I would play for her. And after the first time, they, they brought all the residents in. And as Inzi was saying about the reaction that she saw from the children, uh, the same thing from these people who were in various stages of being there and not being there, uh, that they would come back to life in a way that I don't think any of the people who work at the nursing home had seen for many, many years. And my grandmother in particular would respond uh, to me playing. And that meant the world to me and it showed me at a very young age the power of music and so i've continued to try and do that whenever i had time and now it just seems like the perfect time to integrate it as a real uh, new series and initiative into the chamber music society's ongoing work we plan to continue in the fall once things are open hopefully, and running at full speed again. We'll go to Children's Hospital, Emory Hospital. I'm going to choose a couple of the Alzheimer's uh, living facilities because, uh, again, that's one of the most powerful ways to reach people who can't either communicate or remember much about the, their earlier lives. And it's almost instantaneous when you start playing. If it's a piece they know, they'll sing along, uh, and the joy and the smile that, that you bring out immediately is just, it's priceless. Oh, yes. And it reveals so much about music and the brain, this intricate, beautiful wiring and how music connects to our 
neurology, our physiology, and I think we'd like to think above all to the soul. Absolutely, yes. Yin Kong, Will Ransom, this has been a delight. Congratulations on the beginning of the Emory Chamber Music Society's Music for Healing Initiative, and I can only imagine the places you'll go, as Dr. Seuss used to say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, Lois. We look forward to it. Yinzi Kong is a member of the Vega Quartet. Pianist and professor Will Ransom is the artistic director of the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta. Yinzi will perform on Thursday as people are being vaccinated at Northlake Mall. Music for healing concerts take place on alternate Thursdays from 10 till noon. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last September, I spoke with director Hal Jacobs about his film, Lillian Smith, Breaking the Silence. The documentary was featured at the annual Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. I asked Hal Jacobs why so few people know about this trailblazing woman. So many people see the film and they ask, why didn't I know about her? And we were asking ourselves the same question when we started about three years ago. We just had no idea of the reach of this woman. We, we had no idea of her friendship with Martin Luther King Jr. until we got into it and found that they were connected in, in such an important way. She's just one of those lost voices in our Southern history. And she's one of those voices we need more than ever. She should be a hero. Um, she should be a role model to people who are facing the, the issues of today uh, that we've been facing this summer. And her voice is very powerful. It really comes through um, still today. How did you discover her? Interestingly, I I just finished a short documentary about somebody else who lived in North Georgia, uh, Mary Hambidge, uh, whose work led to the Hambidge Center for the Creative Arts and Sciences. 
And people were watching that and, and asking us if we knew anything about Lillian Smith, who lived about five miles down the road. And that just led us on this great, you know, sort of journey to discover who she was and to talk to people who knew her like Lonnie King, who was one of the leaders of the Atlanta student movement and a Morehouse man. You mentioned North Georgia. Lillian Smith was raised in North Georgia, so she completely understood the severity of racial segregation in the South. What changed her perspective and her ideas on race? She talks about the important moment in her life when she was working in China for three years as a piano teacher at a missionary school. And she saw the way the Europeans were treating the Chinese. And it made her reflect on the way that she had grown up in the South and her, her racial attitudes that she had just assumed, you know, she just took for granted. And when she came back, she started working in a girls camp and she wanted to educate these young Southern white girls to look around them and, 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 and evaluate their roles in society. She was really instilling in them social justice values that we're, we're all still working on today, um, not just racially, but also sexually, you know, looking at their bodies too in a more open-minded way. Now, this was her family's summer camp in North Georgia, Laurel Falls. Right. I can't imagine that she didn't get pushback from the parents, angry criticism, I should think, teaching these young girls about opposition to white supremacy. Did you come across letters she received or any documents about parents' reactions to what was going on at the camp? We, we actually talked to a camper this summer. She's in her late 80s. And she said when she came back from the camp and told her parents what had happened or what she had learned, they said, you're never going back to that place again. I think for most of the girls, what happened at Miss Lil's camp stayed at Miss Lil's camp. And they may have passed the lessons on to their children, but in the 1940s and 50s, it wasn't something that they could do uh, actively. Mm. Now, Lillian Smith wrote some groundbreaking books. The 1944 best-selling book, Strange Fruit, is probably her best-known work. <laughs> and it was simultaneously banned and a bestseller, which I guess is not so difficult to understand, given curiosity. Can you talk about what she conveyed in Strange Fruit? I think she really dissected a, a small southern town and, and showed members of the community from a very diverse cross-section, black and white, and she tried to inhabit the minds and consciousness of, of the black people in the town and, and several of whom had gone to college. Uh, in fact, one was a Spelman girl, which didn't make the president of Spelman very happy at the time. But she goes into depth into a lot of different characters and shows you know, this relationship between the white doctor's son and the young black woman. And to Lillian Smith, she was just writing a love story. 
she she wasn't writing a tract at all, but it 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 became uh, you know it, it it exposed a side of the South that Southerners weren't talking about, and they were really trying to hide. Uh, I think a lot of people thought she was exposing the South's dirty laundry at the time. And I think Lillian Smith just wanted to be the Chekhov of the South and show daily life. Did she actually use those words, was Chekhov her role model? I've seen her refer to Chekhov before, and I thought, oh, my God, that, that's so perfect. So here's this sweet interracial love story that ends tragically. How did Smith present the African-American characters in her book in a way that other white writers had not? I think if you look at other writers like Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, Harper Lee, they avoided Black characters for the most part. They, they did not try to inhabit their minds and so when I interviewed Diane Roberts of Florida State University, she talks about how courageous it was for Lillian Smith to go to a place where white authors did not go. And then if you look at the review that W.E.B. Du Bois gave that the, the novel, like in the front page of the New York Times, he, I quote, he says, it's an important book by any standard. It should be required reading in every deanery, every parsonage, and every legislature on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. I was particularly struck by a portion of the film in which the civil rights leader Lonnie King said, it was important for me to have someone articulating the things I was articulating who did not look like me. What was the impact of this Southern white woman during this era of racial injustice going against societal norms? I will tell you, Lois, that quote struck me so deeply too. Lonnie King was the first person I talked to. And when I saw the impact she had on him and, and the things that he was going through, everything became so much more meaningful to me. And when you see what James Baldwin said about her, about what Dr. King said, they all knew what she was facing by continuing to live in the South and write the way she did. She was threatened. She had several suspicious fires uh, where she lived. Uh, the Klan would, you know, um, rally outside some of her meetings. She lived in this constant state of uh, being threatened, but she also lived in a small town where she was fairly protected. I think the people around her kept an eye out for things. She was also facing cancer for 10 years when cancer treatments were like a death sentence at the time. So she was living with a lot of pressure for the last 10 years of her life until she died in 1966. Do you think the fact that she came from wealth protected her somewhat? I do. I think she came from a very well-educated family that was very outspoken. All of her brothers and sisters were high achievers. I think she was just following in step with the rest of her family. And yet she was lesbian. She had a lifelong partnership with another woman. Before that, she had had relationships with men. She never identified herself 
as a lesbian and, and never even spoke about it. It was one of those things she kept very private, but it also probably added to her perspective of people who are um, segregated against and, and have biases against. Director Hal Jacobs, his film Lillian Smith, Breaking the Silence, is available to stream through the website lilliansmithdoc.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest will be photographer Andrew Filer. His new book is about the Rosenwald Schools, the most important initiative for black education in our nation's history. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would be delighted if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to member-supported 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.